listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. Starting a spiritual path is a particularly difficult thing to do in some respects. In other ways, it's the only option. And usually we fall somewhere in between there. You know, we don't have a choice. This is something that we have to do. Or it's something we feel might be good for us. Both are fine. But the seriousness of the endeavor is, it's, it's rich. It's very, very powerful especially when we take it seriously. If it's not so much a dabble, and it's more than anything else, kind of a commitment, kind of something that inspires a, a, a depth. I always use the term or the, uh, the line resonance, but I'm going to use it again. If it's something that resonates. And there are all these different flavors. I, of course, experimented with all different kinds of uh, uh, flavors uh, during my collegiate, collegiate life. Some of you know I've said this story quite a lot, but I was so uh, uh, bummed out by what God seemed to, and people's relationship to God, seemed to do to the world. Indeed, you can see that at play right now. I am not one usually to bring politics onto the cushion, but I've been absolutely amazed at what's gone on in relationship to the, uh, what do they call it, the Ground Zero Mosque. Um, and I got to tell you, as a former New Yorker, that is not Ground Zero where they're putting that mosque, okay? It's, it's at least three, four minute walk. And um, before you get there, you get a whole batch of falafel stands and strip clubs and all sorts of other really tacky like junk shops and so forth. Um, and I've been amazed how this has been such a point of veiled, quiet, and subtle bigotry, attachment, that somehow <laughs> Islam took down the trade centers as opposed to its fundamentalist variant, those affiliated with Al-Qaeda. What flavor is Al-Qaeda? For many of us in this room, I'm imagining quite indigestible. What flavor is Buddhism? A lot of people say, oh, we'll see, Buddhism's fine because <laughs> they don't attach to anything, so therefore it's safe. It's, there's no such thing as a fundamentalist Buddhist. Guess again. Make sure you uh, uh, get on an airplane, go travel. 
Okay? Actually, you don't even need to travel. You can find fundamentalist or clingy aspects, sticky aspects of religious practice in any of the traditions. And it's critical, I think, that we look at that within ourselves. How is it that this work can actually become an expression of loving kindness? How is it that this tradition, so to speak, or this practice that we've got going on here in this room can actually bring about a fundamental shift in who it is that we've always thought we were into a space of the person we've always actually been. Don't ask me to repeat that because I don't really know what I just said, but you get the idea. <laughs> who, who have we always been at our core? Not who do we think we are, who have we been? Can we bring that into this life? And can organizations like Infinite Smile Sangha help to facilitate that? As I was listening to the radio uh, in relationship to this Ground Zero mosque, uh, there were these three points of view that were being articulated. And it's kind of interesting because one person was saying, this should definitely not be built. This is an affront to all that is American. There is another uh, individual who is articulating, what do you mean? I'm, I'm a Muslim and I'm as American as you can possibly get. Okay, I played Little League. My last name may not be something you can pronounce very easily, but I am American. It deserves to be there, just like any other, you know, uh, privately held, you know. Oh, great point he brought up was, whatever happened to property rights? It was a very interesting argument that he was, he was presenting. And then the third person, which I, which I thought was kind of the coolest, it didn't really help the, uh, the show very much, but it was, all religion is bad. <laughs> for us to even have this debate makes no sense. Religion is for the stupid. It's for the weak. It's for the, and this, this person just kept going. They really didn't hold back. And they said, so to even be having this discussion about some you know, uh, uh, big center celebrating anything that worships is quite ridiculous. Can we please move on? And in a weird way, that's kind of how Infinite Smile kind of started. For the better part of a decade, what we've been talking about here is, is it possible to create uh, an environment to create a practice that's free of the cultural trappings of tradition, yet does not negate tradition. So many people have shown up and repeatedly said, you know what, I just don't feel good about going back to being a Catholic or going back to being, you know, a Methodist, which actually no one's ever said that, but still, um, you know, going back to this, this uh, religion of my, of my childhood, it doesn't seem to fit any longer. And my choices are go back to the religion that I came from, go to something that's totally foreign or nothing at all. And so I've chosen nothing at all. Can you help? And my answer repeatedly is no, I cannot help. I cannot help. But that's a false choice. No one ever needs to be in that space. How can you deepen, deepen your relationship to God? Not a God you don't believe in. The God that you do not believe in does not exist. But can you actually deepen your relationship to whatever type of spiritual core you might have? 
Can you keep, if you will, mining for that gold that's there? And to the extent that Infinite Smile as a group, as a Sangha, as an organization can help support that search, I wish all of you luck. You also, I'm going to give you a little coaching advice here. Work hard, know that you'll get it. Shall we sit? It was 15, 15 or 20 years ago, I was listening to a teaching done on the, uh, the Metta Sutta. And I'm hoping every one of you has, a, has one of those around. Were there, were there did anyone not, not have one? I'll give you some background. Uh, first of all, Sutta is the Pali word for the Sanskrit Sutra. And sutra, roughly translated into English, means to sow. Now, if anything is called a sutra, it was actually spoken by the Buddha, or at least the reference is quite, quite uh, uh, heavily linked with what the Buddha said. Except, we have no idea what the Buddha said. So, take it as you will. It's all delusion anyway, right? The neat thing, though, about... Um, scripture is that it can point out some stuff uh, that can be very, very, very powerful. And uh, I was one who rebelled against this tooth and nail. I did not care about the sutras. I did not care about chanting. I did not care about any type of devotional practice at all. And then I heard this, this one particular teacher answer a question during the Q&A after uh, he gave a Dharma talk. And they were, they were, the, the, the person asked the question, I wish it had been me, it wasn't, but uh, the, the, the person said, you know, I, I just don't really get what all this chanting is about. I don't get what any type of reference to, you know, uh, scripture or anything like that, especially when we don't know if the person actually said it. And, and uh, the, the teacher very skillfully said, well, I'm just going to recite something, and I'm going to do it from memory, and I'm going to tell you what I think it means. And the Metta Sutta is what, what this uh, individual actually recited from memory. I was very impressed with this. I thought this was kind of a cool parlor trick. Anybody who can, you know, like uh, just like that, recite a sutra, you know, at least deserves... Uh, you know, a dollar tip or something at the end of it, but he went in the following way. Follow along with me as I read it to you. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Is everybody with me? Everybody see that? 
Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. Let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her own life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world. Standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one cherish the thought that this way of living is the best in the world. Abandoning vain discussion, having a clear vision, freed from sense appetites, one who is made perfect will never again know rebirth in the cycle of creation of suffering for ourselves or for others. And so after he got through, you know, just, just delivering this, you know, just effortlessly and quite poetically, I was fairly impressed. And, the, you know, skeptical Charlie sitting, sitting right near me uh, said, yeah, okay, well, so what does it mean? He says, well, what do you think it means? He says, well, be nice to people. He says, yeah, it means that. But it means something even more potent in the way I seem to interpret it. And as if by cue, the guy said, you know, well, so what does it mean? He said, it means get real. It means let go of all the stuff you have that keeps you feeling separate, that keeps you feeling above or below another. Get real. Why do you think it is we bow in the tradition? And here again is one of the things. I was listening like crazy to this because I always thought the bowing stuff was a little just creepy. You know, why should I bow to anybody? And the, his response to this, this whole line of, of uh, uh, dialogue was, we bow to salute what is holy in each other. When I bow to you, I am bowing to what is holy in both of us. So I am bowing to what is holy. I'm actually humbled by what is holy. And this is a very, very interesting, interesting approach that in Infinite Smile, at least, we've virtually, you know, I mean, but the only thing we really kind of, uh, uh, in, relationship, in relationship to that, the only thing that we kind of work with is the bow. We bow to each other. Um, and it's always actually kind of cool when I, like I'll see someone, you know, during Q&A, when, when somebody's going to give a question, they'll usually, you know, get my attention, then they'll bow, and then they'll ask the question. Um, it usually takes a long time for people to feel comfortable with that. So usually what they'll do is they'll do this first. <laughs> they give the little sign, the little high sign, hey, I'm over here. And then I'll look at them, and I'll bow to them, and they'll go, 
<laughs> it's kind of like a head fake. Uh, not ready that, you know, that's just, and this is exactly, exactly what um, uh, uh, Ed Brown, the guy that was doing this, uh, uh, you know, was talking about, it's get real. I am not above you. You are not above me. We are all part of the infinite one. And that seamless one, that beautiful unification is not absent of characteristics. It may be seamless, but it is not featureless, we might say. That spirit looks at itself through every pair of eyeballs in this room. That's what we're bowing to. And so this brought up a very, very interesting um, uh, quandary in my head, especially recently as I've been reflecting on it again and again and again. We spent the greater part of the last year uh, working on a mission statement and a vision statement. And people have quite often asked, well, are you uh, a Buddhist organization? Yes, we are. But not really. Because while my training is Buddhist, and it would be silly for me to negate that, the focus is not necessarily Buddhist in its orientation. And this makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. Some people really can, you know, and I mean this with all sincerity, can actually use and f feel much more comfortable and get much further in the st with the structure of tradition. Other people want as little as possible. And Infinite Smile kind of uh, formed around people who wanted as little as possible. Um, I'm probably somewhere in between because I think there's tremendous value in devotional practice, especially since it was something I resisted. That was what gave me the clue that, oh, this is good for me to look at. You know, the minute I didn't like bowing, basically, when I started seeing that, as a very early practitioner, what was being revealed, I got a lot of ego in there. I wasn't interested in doing Q&A. I was interested in telling the teacher what I observed. There's a lot of ego there. So how is it that you can get on the other side of that? How is it that we can go beyond that? And this is where it gets really, really fascinating. We can look, actually, at spiritual practice in three Ways Now, a whole bunch of research has been done on this recently. I went to a conference where this was, you know, really kind of hammered home in ways that I really wanted to share with the Sangha because I thought it was really valuable. Um, you may be familiar with some of the writings of uh, uh, Ken Wilber. Uh, there's also another uh, uh, a group of people called I Evolve, uh, a mixture of all, all sorts of individuals from all sorts of different traditions and so forth. And they talk repeatedly about the three faces of spirit, first person, second person, and third person. Second person is the one that gets overlooked. Second person is what's celebrated in scripture, in, if you will, uh, devotional practice and stuff like that. So let me give you some background. Got to start with this idea of consider yourself uh, 500 years ago. Let's say you were alive 500 years ago. Okay. Would there have been such thing in your experience as um, meaninglessness? Probably not. I mean, you might have been, you know, breaking 
breaking rocks down to sand. That might have been your job. You may have been, you know, the person who went around village to village, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. You know, that might have been your job. That's one of my favorite scenes in contemporary cinema, watching Monty Python deal with history. It's pretty much all you need to know, you know? But it, whatever your job might have been, whatever your level of suffering might have been, it was all for what? It was all God's what? Tell me. God's will. There's purpose. There was meaning. It was God's will. And then the Enlightenment, capital E, came along. And our relationship to God shifted rather radically. There was no way you could lead, if you will, kind of a God-centered life without reverting in some capacity into fundamentalism. Not in all cases, but in most cases. If you really led a God-centered life, it became deeply anchored in scripture, deeply anchored in practice. It became confined and bound. And then what happened was, uh, once that occurred, there was really kind of a, an interesting shift. Uh, culturally, there was a lot of lack of meaning. And I'm reminded of uh, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, this is a big, big deal. It's like, oh, yeah. 1950, somebody help me, somewhere in there, 56, 57, something like that. I might be wrong. But this, this idea, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got to find meaning again. And that's what actually has helped spawn kind of this resurgence in alternative practice. If the church couldn't handle it, in the traditional sense, or the synagogue couldn't handle it in the traditional sense, or even the zendo couldn't handle it in the traditional sense, then where do we go? Well, what tended to happen was we looked at two of the three faces of spirit and lost ground. Let me explain. I'll start with the third person view of God. The third person view of God, if we go first, per first person, second person, third, this is now an English class. First person is I, right? The I relationship to God. God is within, right? And then you have second person, which is not I, but what? You, which is God is you out there. And then we have third person, which is not I, not you, but it out there out there. How is it that the third person's relationship or the third person view of spirit was handled? It was handled by the academy, the university. They started studying, studying texts, studying scripture. The, uh, the goal is to talk about it, talk about spirit. Uh, Science, okay, uh, the universe, reality, all of this was the gift of the enlightenment. It allowed us to, to kind of break free of the constraints of God, okay, and we're able to kind of look at it. Well, this is a really healthy move. But if we allow our pursuit of spirituality to be dictated or, in other words, be governed by an academic approach to it, we won't get very far. It's akin to reading about how one drives a car, but not actually driving a car, right? It's helpful. It's helpful. In fact, you have to do it to get your license, but you don't learn that by not actually internalizing it. 
So the university, the academy, what's the, uh, the way to describe it? What's the way to describe spirit from the third person? Awe. Profound awe. I'm going to skip second person and go to first. Because, as I mentioned, third person is about it. First person, we could say, is about the interior of I. I spend 99% of every Dharma talk on that, pretty much. On the first person approach to spirit. Studying the self. Studying the mind. Studying the emotions. Study, study, study. As we begin to study, turn the university inward on itself, right? We get it into this first person uh, experience of God where uh, uh, we begin to um, recognize that God lives within me and without me. I am the dance of spirit. And every one of us can say it from that perspective. That the experience of spirit is within me. Okay? Now what organizations, other than you have the university for third person, what organizations are going to help foster that? Anybody want to shout it out? What would that be? How about something like this? How about a zendo? How about an ashram? How about some place where, where people meditate and it's, it's internal? It's not praying to God. It is, in essence, listening for God. Yeah? Well, so those two tended to, or tend to, occupy most people's... Um, uh, uh, I, let me rephrase that. The third person and first person tend to inspire most of the people who have walked in these doors, at least. You know, uh, second person doesn't. Second person is not I. It's not it. It's with. God is out there, okay? And I talk to God, okay? I bow down to God. I humble myself before God. God, before the mystery. If you don't like the word God, and most people don't, or many people don't, think about spirit. Do we ever allow ourselves, for instance, to recognize the I and thou? Do we ever allow ourselves to recognize the dance, the conversation that we have with spirit? Now, this flies in the face of a lot of the stuff we do in Infinite Smile because so much of our work at Infinite Smile is about going past that division. The division of I and thou. That it's actually all one thing. But it's also all one thing representing itself as many. So we miss in many respects this second personal, person devotional relationship to spirit in ways that I may have, I don't know, screwed up a little bit <laughs> in this, this organization. I'm not really terribly interested in suddenly turning this into all about scripture and devotional practice, to be honest. But um, I think it's an important thing not to negate. 
that I always wanted to make sure the Infinite Smile was available for people. They could walk in right off the streets here in the hard edge of suburbia. They could walk into these doors and not feel creeped out by this version of the Dharma. I mean, it's weird enough to, you know, say, where are you going? I'm going to Infinite Smile Sangha. What? Sangha? What, what is that? Isn't that, isn't that a city in Hungary? Sangha? Wait, what? I don't get it. Well, we're going to listen to it. Uh, is it Buddhist? Well, you know, I mean, there's, we, we've stripped away all of the cultural trappings, which I think may have been indeed helpful to get people in. But then I think it's important not to disallow. Or it's important, excuse me, it's important not to disregard the fact that every day, should be in some capacity a devotional practice to the mystery. That the second person relationship to spirit is something that can be practiced. No one got this better than Rumi. Jalaluddin Rumi, uh, the, the, the poet, uh, his words were in Persian. It's been translated in all sorts of different languages. But the cool thing about Rumi is that his work, his poetry, his ecstatic reflections on reality are all about devotion. Love this one. In truth, everything and everyone is a shadow of the beloved, and our seeking is his seeking, and our words are his words. We search for him here and there while looking right at him, sitting by his side. We ask, oh, beloved, where is the beloved? Basically saying the same thing as the Metasutta in some respects. It's all right here. Do we have the strength to bow? Do we have the strength to look at a mosque as sacred, at a church? as sacred. Do we have that capacity not to look at, in blanket ways, all religion is bad? Can we recognize that the only way religion is going to change, shift, grow, and evolve is from the inside? In other words, religion is not going to change by trying to eradicate it. We've already seen what that causes. It's going to shift from within. And that starts when we start shifting from within ourselves. So what I'd like to do is just for a second, um, well, quick review. First of all, where do we find the third person, third person relationship to spirit? We see that in the university. Okay? We study it. Where do we see uh, the second? Well, we see the second in churches, in mosques. Okay, in zendos, ashrams, and so forth. Not so much, I should say, not so much the zendos and so forth, but the churches and mosques where God is outside, out there. We hear it in Rumi's words. First person, exemplified by the Buddha, the Christ. Okay? Um, meditation on the eye shows up in that first person expression of spirit. Um, 
I had this, as I was preparing this talk, I was, uh, uh, I was, had a window open on the net, and, and for some reason this, uh, this YouTube thing uh, shot up, and it was a, uh, uh, I was talking about, uh, do you guys remember The Miracle Worker? Patty Duke's first film, she's like 14 when she made that film or something like that with Anne Bancroft. <coughs> and the, the illusion, there was an illusion in this thing to water, the spelling of water uh, in, uh, in her hand and so forth. And how to Helen Keller, her experience was utterly and completely unified. Okay? It was, if you will, all first person, wasn't it? Totally unified. And then she starts to recognize through conversation with Annie Sullivan, second person, she starts to recognize what? Not unification, but differentiation. She suddenly starts seeing that water, oh my God, water. And then it all opens up. It all makes sense. And we can do the same thing, I think, with a second-person approach to our own spiritual life, if we do it carefully. We don't want to become fundamentalist about it. I mean, there's really unhealthy ways that second-person can show up. You guys have seen, uh, you know, when people um, uh, speak, get spoken to by the text, they want to be commanded, they want to submit totally, you know? Uh, that can be pretty dangerous. Um, when there's no analysis, when there's no thought, when there's no appreciation of subtlety or metaphor, when we're expecting our external version of God to transform us without doing any work, you mean all I have to do is accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, that's it? <laughs> Sign me up, right? Well, I think that's a great first step, if that's, if that's your gig. Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior is great. Now devote totally to that. Okay? Devote totally to that. And in the devotion to a second-person relationship, the first-person realization can show up just like with, with Helen Keller. It can show up. Certainly Rumi experienced that. Through devotion, enlightenment occurred. So... Prayer, chant, it's all good. Uh, in relationship to this talk, what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, is say the Metasutta together, okay? Please, as we're doing it, just read it. Let it wash over you. And if you will, please, no Shakyamunis or hallelujahs as, as we go along. Shall we begin? This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented, joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world, let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. Let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean, but that the wise would reprove. 
May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother, at the risk of her life, watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, below and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the world. Standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one cherish the thought that this way of living is the best in the world. Abandoning vain discussion, having a clear vision, freed from sense appetites, one who is made perfect will never again know rebirth in the cycle of creation of suffering for ourselves or others. So allow yourself to dance with ecstasy. Allow yourself to dance with this practice, with one another, with spirit. Allow for a relationship that is inspired by the word with. Always with. Let that be there. And let it inform every aspect of your practice, whatever form it may take, whatever flavor it might be, although I prefer chocolate. What's the question? The question is, is this kind of the original? This is very kind of different and extensive, I guess, so I'm confused about what I was reading about. Does that matter? No, I'm just curious. Okay. Uh, it's what I read uh, when I was a monk. Okay. This is what I read. Um, there's a really cool place of practice there, though, in that question. What is it? There's a really neat place of practice for you in the question that you asked. Is this is this the one or is is this? What's the attachment? Uh, maybe. What do you think it is? I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I've known you long enough to where I guess I can a little. <laughs> yeah, without you freaking out. Well, I guess I'm looking for the 
right one. Right, right. Is this? Is this the right one? Where is it? How does this fit in with everything else I've read? And that's, that's the problem with the pathological second person approach to spirit. That's where the second person approach to spirit can get us in trouble because we turn fundamentalist in that moment. Now, I know you, you're not like some type of, you're the last person I would expect to like have a shotgun and the Bible open to revelations going, yeah, you know. That, the, the, <laughs> or with, you know, the Lotus Sutra doing the same thing. But, but really worrying uh, about, wait a minute, is this the right one? Yeah, I mean, to a certain degree, that's 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 imp whatever, resonates. whatever resonates. Yeah, whatever resonates beyond desire, grip, whatever carries carries us past that inspires generosity, inspires a giving away, a shaking loose. Yes. I think it's I think it's more the second the second uh, uh, aspect of what you said. Is it a revelation? No, it's not a revelation. Is it uh, a giant gap? Maybe in um, uh, the way I have expressed the Dharma or this version of the Dharma might be. I don't know. I'm kind of exploring it. Um, if it's something, <laughs> I guess what I don't want to, I don't want everybody to like walk out here and go, oh my God, he's changed. You know, <laughs> this is awful. We actually chanted, you know. Um, I think, we're, I think we will probably, uh, uh, we'll probably look every once in a while at, uh, at uh, texts that might be valuable. Uh, something that I've eschewed quite, uh, quite a lot. Uh, because I wanted, I think, in many respects, wanted to establish that this is we're, we're we're trying to move in a direction that that goes past yet includes that stuff. And in the process, what I did was I moved past it in in my own humble estimation, moved past it, but I didn't include very much. So what that did is it created a, a weakening on this ladder. The rung was a little weak, I think, on the inclusion of some of this great, valuable, very very valuable stuff. Um, I just. Uh, I still don't like chanting, you know? I still, I still don't find that, uh, you know, I mean, I read, believe it or not, Buddhist stuff uh, and, and, and religious stuff all the time. I bring it in when I find it to be really valuable, really, really powerful or something that resonates in a way that can open, uh, uh, open me. Uh, and then I try to share that and articulate it as best I can. Sometimes I fail miserably, I, and I, at least it appears so. I look, I look out among the faces and I see lots of just blank stares, nodding with eyes open, barely, or, you know. Uh, so I'm, n I'm never really sure. Um, revelatory? Nah. Is it? It does. I think that it's, it's important um, for us to recognize that if we as an organization are left unbalanced by a first-person approach only, I think we can, we can lose ground 
for your real realization and everybody else's. And that's why we're here. So many times we've heard it's not out there. Right. It's not out there. It's and you know what? I'm sticking with that. It's not out there. It's both. And I think it's with the confusion, the minute I say it's not out there, is the minute people say, oh, well, it's, then it's in here. Well, of course it is. But it's also out there. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So being able to bring, bring the in here, study the in here, and let the out there inspire that study allows for us to be much more deeply integrated, okay? Deeply integrated with... Uh, um, uh, as as spiritual practitioners, but have no separation, and that's what I've gathered from all the talks. Is if it's out there, then you're in here, then separation. Yeah, that's. It, really is, has to be all one. it 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 is it is all one, and it 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 is all one thing, and it is also many. It is totally unified, and it is atomized. It's both. What does this allow for? This allows for any of us in this room to take whatever spiritual training we've had, whatever it is, atheism, Judaism, Christianity, whatever, and what, what can we do with it now? We can deepen it. At least that's, that's the hope. So I am, I, am, I am not saying, it's not that it's, God isn't out there any more than God is also within here. But to say God is only in here negates our externality, keeps us small. So, opening to kind of that, I mean, if it is an earthquake, and if I'm really rattling some cages, I think that's actually probably a pretty good thing. I mean, else, why, why else would you pay the big bucks to get in here? You know? <laughs> and we'll see, you know, we'll see how it evolves. Um, I'm not really interested in changing Infinite Smile. So, uh, but at the same time, I think uh, we also evolve as an organization, as a group. I certainly am always questioning my own practice. You know, as, a, as the leader, I'm still always looking at the Dharma, different ways of, of saying it, different ways of realizing it, and also giving myself full permission to watch it shift and evolve, you know. Um, the minute you hear me, you know, the minute you watch me trying to faith heal or something, it's saved, you know, then please talk to me. Yeah. yeah, Yolanda, how are you? Thanks. Um, I just had a thought about chanting and about other different, about first person, second person, third person, and just just different avenues and points of views. And How did that thought strike you that you had? It struck me as that we're all individuals on mm -hmm. slightly different paths and that I have chanted in the past and I have um, felt a, um, very close it's brought me closer at times to, um, it's brought me closer at times. Okay, that's, it's, so to me it's, to me it's another avenue. Mm -hmm. and it might not be 
the right avenue for everybody. So I think it's um, I I think it's good to offer that mm -hmm. opportunity and just it's an experiential. Last week we spoke of this very thing, and we referred to it as afterglow. And I swore at the end of this Dharma talk that I would try to let everybody bask in it, and I blew it. But that is, sometimes when something resonates with the group, and the silence, the, the silence after whatever, whatever has been spoken, or sung, or chanted after, it's like the air conditioning goes off, and everybody goes, oh. And it's always in relationship to participatory activity. And I'm convinced that's exactly why it's not polite to clap after a, a, a hymn in church. It's to allow that afterglow to fill you to your bones, you know? Now, I've been in both situations where it's, you know, the, the Protestant, you know, kind of, ha, 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 you know, saying, ha, and then afterwards, and everybody sits down. And it just kind of would fill me as a kid. And then as a post-college resident of New York City, going up to Harlem or to Riverside and listening to that church sing. And, and the participation from the pews was just unbelievable. Was there afterglow there? Yeah. Okay. So, but the, the point is, and I, I just, I really think you're bringing up a valuable, a valuable thing. Yeah, we are, we are all individuals that are also, we are all one. And the facets of that great jewel all shine. They all reflect light. And so um, my sense is that it's, it's probably something worthy of our consideration as a Sangha, you know? Yeah, that's was my only point. Yeah, no, it's, I... It's nice, to, it's good to... Um, Offer. Maybe every other time we have like a little chant or something like that. Or like after the Dharma talk, we have a chant. I don't know. I mean, that's what we used, we used uh, Zen Center, we used to do that. After every Dharma talk, we would, you know, we'd, we'd have this chant. It was really kind of cool. You never know when yeah. something is going to resonate with someone. That's and, true. Um, I mean, I appreciate that, um, that there's an offering of different opportunities yeah. for me to find something that's going to speak to me. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Oh. Thank you for coming. And also, thank you for showing up. Uh, honestly, I've never seen you here in our interchange or anything when you haven't totally shown up. And it's inspiring. And it's actually a great way to support other people on their path. You show up fully, you have no idea what that does to the person next to you. It's a really powerful gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Afterglow. <laughs> Anyone else? Cheers.